Fast Money starts right now, live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Pete Najeri and Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. Tonight, Wall Street CEOs are cashing in with some of the biggest pay raises of S&P 500 companies. But shareholders have been left in the dust. We've got the details. Plus, Boeing ending the day in the green despite deliveries dropping 37% for the first half of the year. Is all the bad news already priced into this stock? Top technician explains why he says buy Boeing now. But first, we start off with the make or break moments for the markets. That's right. All of Wall Street is bracing for two days of testimony from Fed Chair Jerome Powell on Capitol Hill, along with the Fed minutes, which will also be released tomorrow. And it's all going down as the market hovers at record highs. So can Powell deliver? And is the Fed about to spark another record rally? Guy. Why, why yeah, Survivor? Exactly. Why, why, why the Tiger? Why Survivor? I mean, I mean guys, that song is brutal. You chose that, right? I, it's not I, brutal. Oh, yeah, no, That's it's not Kirk a good Nick song. or whatever. That's who? I don't know. Okay. Survivor. Oh, yeah, Survivor. I allow 10 seconds of needless chit-chat. Because we have Guy, to. can you please? We usually do 59 minutes. Proceed with the show. <laughs> Look, I've thought I've thought the market's going to roll over for quite some time. Your question is, can the Fed say what the market needs to hear in order to can have this rally continue? Well, the S&P 500's at all-time high. The VIX has a 15 handle, and everybody feels pretty uh, confident that this rally is going to continue. I can't imagine what he could possibly say that could be any more dovish than they've been. But it's to be interesting. He has to answer questions tomorrow. Is that right? Yes. And the questions, my, if I'm a senator or a congressperson. What would you ask, Guy? First question I'd ask is, listen, the president talks about this being the greatest Adami. economy in the history of the public. He might be right. If that's the case, why are you even considering lowering rates? And I've got to tell you something, there's no way he has a good answer what? for that. He could say that inflation is, is, has not You know not what, come. I mean, and I would, my pushback would be... Hold on, but guy, can I ask you a yes. question? Because am I, the, am I, I Senator well, Corleone I now? Or? I understand, Senator Adami, I understand the righteousness around the Fed and NERP and zero interest rates that I do think have a deleterious effect on the world, let alone our economy, for a long time. But do you actually think the economy right now, relative to... All the other times the Fed has been in play does not deserve a Fed cut. It's interesting. That's extraordinary. But I'm not the I'm not the guy that says every other day that this is the greatest economy ever. And people are are uh, what's the word he's looking for? People are jealous of our economy, and we're the envy of the rest of the world. So those are his words, not mine. I happen to think the economy is slowing down not only here but globally. And maybe maybe it's the right thing to do. But you know what the 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 definition of an insanity is doing the same thing over again, hoping for a different, uh, different reaction, and that's what the Fed's, Fed's doing now. Yeah, so what's different this time is that here we are, this longest expansion in the last hundred years in the mm-hmm. U.S., the one that you say that every other uh, major economy is jealous of. Here's the issue. You know, we've had 10 years of basically zero interest rates and now negative interest rates, and we're talking about a, Fed, uh, a cut really soon after the latest raise, right, in December. And we have a situation here, though, where we are going to be cutting interest rates. Fed fund rates have never been cut from this low of spot, you know, at, at, you know, at this point. We're two and a quarter, two and a half, whatever it is. And when you look around the world and you look at sovereign debt, you start to say to yourself, oh, wait a minute, maybe this has just been a rolling credit crisis for 10 years, right? So we came out of it quickly. We're the ones who actually started raising rates quicker than everybody else. Now we're all racing to cut them off of these levels. To me, that seems very dangerous. And that's what's very different this time about a rate cut if you're thinking that this is going to be positive for risk assets. Mm. Sounds, uh, I tell you what, it, you sound very bearish. You sound like the last 10 years, sort of that's a bearish tone in terms of how this market has moved to the upside. 
So what I would say back to you is this. I, I'm looking at right now, and if, I think that Powell and those guys are looking at the global economy as much as they are the U.S. economy. And that maybe they shouldn't be, but I think that's all part of how they're viewing this whole thing. So I think that's part of, did they make a mistake in December? I think most of the desk, I think, would say probably they did. So are they going to make up for that now and do this Take cut? Back. And I would say oh, wait, they most wait, wait, likely wait. will. If everybody is so convinced that a cut in December was this massive, massive problem. I've heard it was a days, race, right? Uh, 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 race. Yeah. I've heard for days and days and days, strategists, economists come on here and say that a 25 basis point cut is not going to do anything for the economy. It's just taking back what we did in December. So why is that such a problem? I just don't get it. It well, doesn't make but, any but sense. But you're bringing up the point that actually I think is really where we are. People are not sure that the Fed needs to do much more than 25 basis points. And if so, where are equities relative to the move that they've had where they've priced in 50 and in fact they probably priced in 75 to a full point by the middle of 2020 and, and I think for, for, for the markets that have more Fed as I said yesterday on this show more Fed as in not necessarily more hikes or cuts but the, the more headlines out of the Fed over the next two weeks from Powell between minutes between a Fed meeting next week that obviously this all rests on it's hard to feel that equities are in a place where they can rally more. Right. And then we're going to get earnings season between now and the next Bingo! Fed meeting. Already 80% of the S&P 500 companies have pre-announced. What did we hear from a BASF yesterday? Not good. After Not the bell good. In, in Germany. Blaming which... the weakness in, in the auto market. Blaming the China trade uh, issue here in terms of the weakness. Then we had Pepsi today. Sugar water Sugar company, water, right? Yeah. Pretty good quarter. Yeah. What did it do? It was down a percent. But it's had on a day. huge move. Though, uh, yes, yes, yes. No, no. But that's okay. my point. That's yeah. my point. With the markets at or close to record highs, and a company reports earnings that are good, yeah. doesn't raise the guidance. What do you get? Right. You get softness. You get a little bit of you softness. Get a softness. You get a little bit of right. a pullback. But we've watched these rotations. So what is the winning happen? situation in earnings season? Well, I think what we've got to look at it this way, Mel, is is we've been in this rotational market for a very long time. And I don't know how many times we've sat on this desk and said, well, the FANG trade's what's really pulling us to the upside. And all of a sudden, it's the industrials are really pulling us to the upside. Energy started pulling us to the upside not too many months ago. So there's been different aspects of the market that continue to pull this market up towards and now at these highs. So it's just a matter of, I think, Pepsi, if you're up 20 plus percent in a company like Pepsi year to date, I don't know what their delivery had to have been to get them a little bit higher. That's exactly my point. Right, but I think there are other places that people could rotate to that haven't made that move. And maybe, you know, quite frankly, right in the same world, Coke's had a pretty decent year, but nothing close to what Pepsi's done so far. So I think there are other names out there that could rotate. No, I think rotation's a great thing, Pete Spinata. But I also say to your point, I mean, yes, you have to deliver. Not only do you have to deliver this quarter, I think your guidance has to be more than just strong. It has to be outstanding. And I don't think we're going to hear that. And it's interesting. You know, the Fed can do a lot of things, but when you're an opponent, and, and I view the rest of the world as our opponent. I mean, I'm sort of in Trump's camp. But if your opponent is weakening themselves, don't weaken yourself along with them. Step on their neck. And stepping on their neck doesn't mean lowering rates along with them. I'm probably one of the only people in the world that stepping thinks on that. Their, now, hold on a second. But central you banks have, an, you have an opportunity this, now. This isn't a, it's not a, 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 a to strength the top We're not going to go into the U.S. Full, economy. Full, Strengthening uh, it isn't lowering the, rates, my opinion. And yes, it is level. Jimmy Snooker you were looking Jimmy for. Jimmy Superfly. Super so fly. I would be the... I would be Fed Chair Snuka. Yeah, but they don't know what they want. We heard Cudlow this morning. Well, he was half asleep talking about... Me? Well, you, you know, did this to Pete before. Cudlow's yeah. a big trader. He's in for the strong gesticulation dollar. dollar. This is not what the White House thinks. And I thought that was a pathetic performance today. The guy was half asleep. Low energy. And I just... You know, everything that he said was at odds is what, what's coming out of Do the president's Twitter Do you think what account. he said about Jay Powell's job being safe 
is that it's not, is that, it's just I was going to say, is that almost more of a negative than a positive when he says something like that? It's a bunch of I, I just think people are looking at the market with with some sense of extremes that are about to be upon us based upon where we came from. Mm-hmm. People wonder whether we have another December up our sleeve when, in fact, nothing fundamentally has really changed since December other than a Fed who obviously made a radical pivot. And therefore, if that Fed is not your friend for the rest of the, you know, in the next couple of weeks where we get all this Fed, I think equity investors are wondering whether actually there's there's a major drawdown. The bottom line here is the market we have in front of us has earnings that are going to be weaker. The market knows that. Uh, and it knows it in the context of bond yields that are 70 basis points lower, which has a lot to do with where equities are. That's the big question. Yeah. You know who would be a great guest at this point? Seidel. Who would be a great Jay-Z, guest? Jay-Z, yeah. Not the one married to that Beyonce, but the, but the other one. The, the real the one. Real the one. original the number one. Jay-Z. The number one Jay-Z. It would be great if you were here. Okay, let's bring him in. As investors eagerly await Jerome Powell's testimony tomorrow, our next guest says don't get too excited just yet. The market usually gets it wrong when it comes to the Fed's next move. Let's bring in Jay-Z, Joe Zidle, Chief Investment Strategist at Blackstone. Joe, always great to see you. Thanks for having Thanks me back. He likes here. the nickname, you can tell. Oh, I was Jay-Z. 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 You own it. Original Jay-Z. He loves yeah. it. Jay-Z owes you. Um, you say a 10 to 15% correction from here is realistic. What's I think gonna, so. What's going to precipitate that, in your view? It is that markets are much more dovish on central bank policy than the Fed is, right? The markets went from, you know, five months ago pricing in two hikes to, as of last week, pricing in three cuts. And we know that the market is always bad when it comes to predicting both the magnitude and timing of Fed actions. So why should this time be any different? You've got markets that are up over 20% in the last six months on anticipation of an aggressive rate cut uh, path. And yet, I don't think growth is nearly weak enough to justify it, nor is inflation necessarily weak enough to justify that aggressive level of of cutting. So you have this mismatch between what the market expects, really aggressive cuts, Mm -hmm. and I think what the Fed will deliver, which is going to be something less. I think that's going to create volatility and downside for equities over the course of the next six months. It's clear that there has been a vast disparity in terms of what the market seemed to have been expecting and what the Fed seems to be ready to do. But... Very recently, the markets have really recalibrated quickly as well, to be fair to the markets. I mean, when we got the jobs data, we saw Fed Fund's future recalibrate very quickly. Yep. 50 was off the table, 100% for July. I'm not sure where they stand at this very mm-hmm. moment in time. Um, but let's say we get that July cut. Yep. Isn't that what the markets want? And after that, it's, it's who knows? It's whatever Jerome Powell's sort of jaw bones. And so I don't that think it's disparity gonna, doesn't yeah. exist. I don't think it's going to be necessarily enough, though, because they'll get 25 basis points most likely in July, but then they're going to want more. And you have to think about the combination of earnings and interest rates, right? And we, we started talking about earnings just a minute ago because we are in earnings season. And what a lot of people are, are overlooking is the fact that earnings have been incredibly weak. The first quarter, they were awful, basically down 40 basis points on a year-over-year basis. Second quarter, earnings don't look much better. So you don't have the earnings growth. And you have a market that wanted much more aggressive Fed cuts, but they're not going to quite get it. So in other words, I think we're set up for, for some downside. Now, what's interesting is, the relationship between the market and the Fed is basically turned on its head from what you would normally expect. If you look at every Fed cut cycle going back to the 1950s, what you find is normally the market's flat in the six months leading up to the first cut because the markets are sniffing out weakness or sniffing out problems. So equities are generally flat in the six months leading up to the first cut. And then six months after the Fed cuts, the market's up 12%. 12 months later, it's up 20%. We're up 20% coming into the first cut. In other words, the market's already done all the work that they expect the Fed to do. Where we go from here, 
but Jay Z, that's really important. That's part of the discussion we were having. Is it that Tina situation? Is it because rates are now so low and we're contemplating a cut off of such a low base that equities money had to go into equities? You understand what I mean? Like I think we're speaking the same language, and that sets up for a very dangerous situation, in my opinion. And the point is, I think they're trying to put lipstick on a pig and saying it's an insurance cut, but really it feels like it's the start of a rate cutting cycle, and especially when you consider what's going on with sovereign debt around the world. Yeah, I mean, I think if it's just an insurance cut, if it's just a one and done, then there's nothing but downside for the markets because the markets are sniffing out problems that I don't think exist, right? What the market is saying is there's no inflation. And because there's no inflation, you have to cut aggressively. Well, if you look at the components of inflation for a second, look at core CPI, right? And that's CPI minus food and energy. The single largest component of core CPI at 60% is housing. If you look at rental vacancy rates, they're at the lowest levels that we've seen since the 1980s. And the, uh, call it the stock of single-family homes, is at the lowest levels that we've seen since the 90s. So in other words, you have real tight housing markets, and that leads to upward pricing pressure. That's point number one. Then the other 40% of, of core CPI are things that could be impacted by tariffs. And you saw, that type of com- you saw those comments coming out of the ISM survey where companies across many different industries We're talking about supply chain problems and higher input costs. So in other words, a market that says, hey, there's no inflation out there, all of a sudden you look at the biggest components of it and you think, well, you know, maybe there could be, which means the Fed's not cutting as Simple yes or no. Isn't a 10 to 15 percent correction in the markets by definition going to bring in more Fed? Uh, That's a good question. Um, We've seen this sort of like Fed put. Um, if we go back to where we were at the beginning of the year, I don't know. It could very well be, but I don't think we get an insurance cut when we're up 20% year to date. But I think you bring up a good point. If we get like a, a 15 to 20% correction, if you get a panic in the market, it probably does bring it back on the table. Which, by the way, if you're looking at this over the course of the next six months, I would view that as an opportunity because I think what's clear is that this is not the end of the cycle. So if you do get that, that downturn and you do get that panic, I would lean into cyclical sectors. I would lean into you know, the tech, the industrials. I would lean into credit and things like that because we're not looking at the end of an expansion here. We're 121 months and counting, and we could go a lot longer, in my opinion. Joe, great to see you. Thank you. Jay-Z. 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 Why Joe? Original. Why Joe? Why confuse people? Love Jay-Z. Joe's idol. That's what we do awesome. on this show. You, people have to pay attention. <laughs> you, it's the cheapest thing to do, right, Pete? <laughs> You're right. That's so right. <laughs> you asked that question because you think that the Fed would step in. Well, the, the, the Fed that we know will absolutely step in there. I, I would also say that, yeah, I know the market's up 20% from December, but it was down 20%. So um, you get a place where it's hard to really know what's, what's the world that we live in. Um, but... It, Look at tech. I mean, look at Amazon. Amazon's within 1% of it all time. People say that we haven't seen rotation and that the old leaders aren't back into play. I mean, they're back in play. And Amazon, we haven't talked about on this show, I feel like, in a long time. And, in fact, that's right there. You know, the argument for a cut the president and a lot of people make is, yeah, I mean, we have strong jobs. Everything. However, no inflation. Yeah. There is inf- You heard Jay-Z just now. Inflation is in all the wrong places. Nobody wants to acknowledge it, least of which is the Fed. And be careful what you wish for, Melissa Lee, because Did inflation. Did I wish for anything? No, no, I'm but, just saying oh, in general. Should, inflation okay, is careful. one of those things like once for. that genie's out of the bottle, and I'm not talking about Barbara Eden genie, the, the, the inflation Which is genie, a shame. But that's party's over. That's ridiculous. People have been saying that since 2009, since they went to zero interest rates, and it's never happened. I mean, I think that there's so many different factors that force you uh, in play that relative to last 
cycles where we've seen inflation become a problem. Just look at technology. Back a lot to your of secular point. Secular changes that will keep inflation. Uh, Deflation is an issue. Right. Uh, if anything, uh, the, the, the byproduct of a credit crisis is deflation. Look at Japan. Oh. That's what we're fighting. Genie or no genie? Genie or no genie. Coming up, check out shares of Levi. The hot IPO is sinking after hours following its earnings report. Its conference call is underway. We'll bring you the very latest. Plus, Wall Street CEOs are making big bucks while shareholders are left in the dust. And that has one of our traders sounding the alarm. We will explain. And later, more Boeing fallout as its deliveries drop sharply. But one top technician says the worst is over for the aerospace giant. He will tell us what has him pressing buy. We are live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Financials have been lagging the broader markets over the last year. But while that might hurt investors' pockets, the company's CEOs have been laughing all the way to the oh, bank. According uh-huh. to the Wall Street Journal, Jeffrey's Richard Handler more than doubled his paycheck to $45 million in 2018, while Jeffrey's shareholders saw a 15% drop. Other Wall Street CEOs like Jamie Dimon, James Gorman, Larry Fink, Michael Corbett, all cashing in as their stock sunk as well. Will high pay low returns hurt these financials, Tim. Well, yeah, we spent a lot of time this year talking about the financial crisis, and it's certainly a case of going into, you know, kind of the glory years for banks were 2003 through 2008, where financial engineering basically almost sunk a lot of these guys, and these they were well paid and there was zero accountability. Um, when we talk about banks as an asset class, I also think that people are, are maligning the banks as a group, Dan, um, that, that ultimately, I'm just kidding. No, you're I mean, not. You know, well, I don't think not, you though. are. Well, uh, uh, here's the anyway. point. XLF, as, as, a, as a group, has underperformed the S&P by all of 100 basis points this year, despite you know, all that's happened with the yield curve and all the pressure in, in terms of negative interest, negative interest rates. So, um, I, you know, I, I think CEOs need to be, I think shareholders of the companies need to hold the CEOs accountable to the mm-hmm. profitability of the company now and five years in the future. Whether we've changed that, that was the big issue for the banks. Yeah, I think what's really disappointing here is that obviously a lot of U.S. banks got bailed out. They would have gone out of business. Yep. These CEOs would have been out of their butts, just like a tens and tens of thousands of employees. Like we would have been. And, and, and I think what's going on right now is a real shame. I think we're overbanked as a country still, and I think we're going to continue to see um, consolidation, and I think that it's really important just to remember, you know, Deutsche Bank is going to be firing 18,000 people. We all know some of these people. They will not find jobs again, and it just seems that as people are replaced, it seems like the people at the top, the ones that got the bailouts, the real bailouts 10 years ago are the ones that their pay keeps skipping higher. I'd like to actually argue that side because when I hear you say that, Jamie Dimon is one of the only guys left who was there before the financial crisis, through the financial sure. crisis. You look at these banks and it's all new guys. I mean, Corbett wasn't there. You well, look across. All there. They might have been there, but they weren't the guy in they charge. Were they were the not tenants. the CEO They're in the charge tenants. of everything. So because of that, I think you have to look at this a little bit differently. You have to look at the, what have these guys had to do in a completely different environment that they, than their predecessors had going into the all financial crisis. All they had to do was sit on their hands. That's all they had to do. Uh, I I there's a lot more than that. They the had to hire all equity. sorts when? of different positions. Oh, I'm just saying. They just J- regulatory they, deals. J- hold on, J.P. Morgan. Last time I checked, aren't they at record profitability? I mean, we're talking about I banks was, that are underperforming. J.P. Morgan's say, never been more profitable. This, this all this divides amongst people who believe that the stock prices actually reflect the value of the franchise, and the people who believe that the stock prices do not reflect the value of the franchise. Right? 
that they're somehow undervalued, not fully appreciated yet in the marketplace. You think that well, they were just way overvalued back then for taking risks that they really didn't understand. And that I think I it's really important to remember that as recently as 2012, there were tempest in teapots and some of these best of breed banks. Okay, so there's still a situation, or there has been for years, where some of the people running these places who get paid tens of millions of dollars a year do not know what's going on as far as risk taking. Dan is rather exercised. That tempest in the teapot, that's a Shakespeare thing, right? I mean, most things are from Shakespeare. What, don't look at me quizzically, please. I'm just wondering where you're going I don't going think with you this. were suggesting this, but <laughs> embedded in that question to begin this block was, uh-huh. should CEO pay somehow be linked to stock performance? I don't think any of us want that. Quite frankly, I think you want exactly the opposite right. because you could be in a position where you could do a lot of things to make the stock right. go higher and then get paid. So I don't think you want that. In terms of the banks, Citi's going to report in about a week or so, I think on the 15th of July, you know, that's a stock that when it gets to these levels in terms of price to tangible book, it's a little ahead of itself. You'll look and see when they report tangible book will be either side of $66. This stock should be trading closer to 70 than to 80, in my opinion. All right, we've got a quick market flash here. Check out shares of T-Mobile. The stock is jumping after hours on news it will replace Red Hat and the S&P 500 effective Monday, July 15th. Of course, this is after Red Hat closed its deal with IBM Today, you see the shares up by 2.6%. Obviously, um, a big question is, will the Sprint T-Mobile deal actually go through? We're supposed to hear about that sometime, maybe this week. What do you think, Dan? I think that it definitely should go through. I mean, when you think about the oligopoly they have between Verizon and AT&T, and you think the way that they're stacking up assets, these are two wireless assets that are coming together. And so I think that you do need a much stronger number three player in the market, and that will make it a much more competitive environment. Earlier this year, when there was news that this deal was going to happen on this show, I believe, and T-Mobile went mm-hmm. down, I think, about 6 or $6 $7, yeah. traded down to the low 60s, we had a conversation. This is the wrong reaction. We talked about John Ledger sort of being the man and what he's done with that company over the last few years. Now you wake up today, and this stock is either side of $75, probably higher now. People will knock it on valuation. And when you compare it to its peers, it is ridiculous, but they probably are deserved of that. All right, we got to head to break. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC. First in business worldwide, here's what else is coming up on Fast. Well, it's one small step for man as Richard Branson's space company plans to go public. But we'll tell you why it might be one giant leap for tech investors. Plus, check out this Dow Downer. The stock is getting crushed this year, and you won't believe where one top technician thinks it's heading next. There's much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Boeing ending the day in the green despite deliveries dropping sharply in the first half of the year as its best-selling plane sits on the runway. Phil LeBose at the Chicago Bureau with more on this. Hey, Phil. And because the 737 MAX is grounded, Melissa, we saw the same thing for the third straight month when Boeing announced its June orders and deliveries. For the month of June, there were no MAX orders. Third straight months that we've seen that. And the backlog, it dropped by three planes, though it's still at about 4,400. And in terms of deliveries, the first half numbers from Boeing relative to where they were in the first half of last year and the year before, huge fall off in 737 deliveries. By the way, they're still delivering some 737 NGs, but because they are not delivering MAXs, that's why the numbers are far lower. Take a look at shares of Airbus. And I point this out because Airbus also announced its orders and deliveries for June and the first half today. And here's something that people have not heard in a long time. Airbus is on pace to deliver more commercial airplanes than Boeing 
for the first time in seven years. If they continue through the rest of the year at the current pace, especially with the A320 at the pace of deliveries, they will outpace Boeing in that regard. Quickly take a look at shares of Boeing. Remember, it reports earnings later this month. And the focus right now, 737 MAX production schedule. Guys, if it holds at 42, most analysts believe this stock is likely, while under pressure, to stay in that 345 to 360 range. But if they cut production again, that's when people believe the stock takes another step lower. Phil, would it be safe to say that, or is it fair to say that Airbus has won orders on the back of Boeing's problems? Because initially when this whole thing happened, the argument was that it's very hard to move those orders and to lose those orders to Airbus because the backlog is so long. I'm not sure they've won a lot of orders. If you mm-hmm. took a look at the most recent orders uh, for the month of June, yes, there were some orders for the A320 or the A320neo, wh- whatever variation of that single aisle plane, the counterpart to the 737, Melissa, but not a huge number of them. This is a segment that has, for the most part, been filled out over the next four to six years. So it's not like you have a lot of airlines that are sitting there saying, "Why well, I need these, these planes. I need to go and place a big order right now. Most airlines that want it have already placed that order. That said, Airbus is in a position where it can fill some slots right now Maybe it's a couple of years down the road. Those are slots that Boeing would like to fill, but obviously with the MAX being grounded, it's tougher right now. All right, Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau in Chicago today. So is the action today a sign that the worst is over for Boeing? Pete, what do you say? Well, I think it's awfully interesting because of the fact I kept waiting for this moment where we'd actually see this stock come back under or get close to 300 again. We haven't seen that. It's gotten to the 330s and and then it bounces right back up. So I've watched the implied volatility of the options because my whole theory on this whole thing was going to be it gets anywhere near 300. I'd like to buy the stock. I'd like to start selling calls against it with a large implied volatility. We don't have that anymore. The volatility has really been sucked out of Boeing, despite the fact that the 737 is still grounded. Their delivery numbers, all the numbers today were absolutely awful. I mean, Phil was talking about that. Airbus obviously is, I think, taking a little something. And maybe I think one thing Phil might be missing is the more opportunity for Airbus to get in there, the better opportunity for them. That does hurt Boeing eventually. So how long does this actually grounding of the 737 and lack of orders for that, that could be something that could be really impactful down the line for Boeing. All right. Well, our next guest says the skies are clear for takeoff for Boeing after a turbulent first half. Let's go off the charts to Todd Gordon of TradingAnalysis.com over at the Plasma. Todd, what are you looking at? Hey, Melissa. Uh, yeah, let's first look at uh, the industrials before we get into the technicals of Boeing. Boeing be the, being the biggest component of XLI, we have uh, certainly a cautionary tale here in XLI. So XLI up here, you can see struggling to hold on to that 200-day moving average where the broader markets are doing just fine with it. Here's the problem down here. This is XLI divided into SPX. So XLI over here, SPX over here. If this line is dropping, it means the first one is weakening against the second one, which is, of course, the S&P. And clearly, there's been massive underperformance in the industrial. So, again, being Boeing with being the largest component, that's an issue. Um, so, obviously, we've seen a nice, huge run up here in Boeing. We've begun to consolidate. But, again, I'll draw your attention down to the lower uh, ratio here. You're seeing underperformance of Boeing against XLI. So, XLI underperforming SBX, Boeing underperforming XLI. That is a bit of an issue. Um, before we flip off the screen, I was listening to Pete's levels back there. If you just look at the depth of prior corrections here, I highlight them. I don't want to flip charts here, so I'm not going to hit clear. But if you look at prior corrections, you're talking about 30%, 27%, 25%, and again, 25%. 
we should hold, if we counterbalance, if we go below a 30% depth, that's about the 310 level in Boeing. If you break below 310, you will have counterbalanced all prior corrections and perhaps you're not in a correction anymore. So if you're looking to pick up shares, I would, I would watch that 310 level um, in Boeing. So that's the weekly in Boeing. Let's look at another one that's really dragged the XLI, XLI down, which is of course 3M. Same kind of concept, relative strength of XLI into 3M. We have 3M massively underperforming the XLI. No surprise there. This is a weekly chart. This isn't even a daily chart. You can see this is the 200-week moving average, which I really like. You can see we have broken below it, where the broader market has no problem staying above the last average price the last 200 weeks. So this is the weekly. Drop down to the daily here. Um, and again, this is a nasty kind of drop below the 200-day. We came up, gapped through the 200-day. We're coming back to retest. If you want to be a short seller, if you want to try to hedge, maybe stops above that 200-day. And again, just look at how much 3M has underperformed the XLI, which again is underperformed the SPX. So certainly weighing on the broader markets. All right, Todd, thank you. Todd Gordon of TradingAnalysis.com. Would any of you buy 3M? No. And it's been, it's been an underperforming. I mean, this is not in a vacuum. We've said this for a while. This has been an underperforming now for a while. It's, it's down 30-something percent, and this analyst finally comes out and downgrades the stock. Yeah. I guess better late than never, mm. but good for him or her. Boeing, quickly, can we? Yes, we Because should. we talked we about should. that. We should. I, we think, should. I think we should. And I think he made great points. But I'll say this. Last quarter, they had $22 billion in revenue. Everybody thinks this is a commercial airline company, and it is. But that's only half their revenue. There's a $6 billion defense aspect to this that I think the market is now mispricing, quite frankly. Go back to last quarter. wasn't a disaster. They stopped buying back stock. I get it. No more guidance. I get it. But you're talking about a company valuation-wise, which hasn't been at these levels maybe ever. And I understand that some of the, some of the headwinds and some of the unknowns, but I think the stock is a buy right I, here. I, I agree with your, your assessment of their company business. I, I will also say Hunter K, who's probably one of the best on this airline, or certainly on this plane manufacturer, uh, downgraded today. Uh, basically, 30 bucks a share, roughly half of that was due to Max being grounded. He says $2 million a month equals to $7 billion. But also, it's, it's going to retard some of the other initiatives they have, like the NMA, yes. and, and so, which is a major accretion, um, which was going to be a major accretion to profitability going forward. That's new midsize aircraft for you people at home who don't know what that means. Uh, and I do think you have to think about these downgrades will be continuing to trickle in a bit on Boeing. All right. Coming up, check out these bad jeans. I'm not talking about Tim. <laughs> that is so good. Jeans. That is and they're very actually, good. They're all right. All right. Um, newly public company Levi falling apart at the seams after the company's earnings report. We'll bring you the very latest. Speaking of IPOs, Sir Richard Branson taking his Virgin Galactic public later this year via SPAC, special purpose acquisition company. We'll tell you what that means and if this space stock could see out of this world returns. More Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on denim retailer Levi Strauss. Courtney Reagan's back at headquarters with the latest from the conference call. Hey, Court. Hi, Melissa. So shares of Levi Strauss are under pressure here after hours. Profit was hit by negative currency impacts, higher advertising expenses, and the cost of growing its direct-to-consumer business. But Levi's revenues came in slightly better than expectations in total, despite, according to CEO Chet Berg, a, quote, challenging retail and macroeconomic environment. Sales actually grew in all geographic regions across men's, 
women's, tops and bottoms, Europe was the strongest region. Revenue there up 9%. Sales in Asia up 6%, 3% in the Americas. Now, Levi's direct-to-consumer business, that increased 9%. Wholesale business, so a lot of that through department stores, up 3% too. Women's is a key growth area. It's a smaller business than men's, but the total category grew 16% in the quarter. That was more than twice that of the larger men's business growth. Now, gross margin did contract slightly from last year, and that was largely due to the unfavorable currency impact, and that drag was partially offset by less discounted sales. Now, Levi's working hard to market its cool, reflected in expenses, as I mentioned, but at least it paid off at Coachella. In the second quarter, we again dominated Coachella as the go-to uniform for festival season, with Levi's 501 cutoff shorts, which were up more than 50% this quarter, taking center stage. Berg also said it sells a graphic t-shirt every second. Levi plans to open nearly 100 new of its own stores in this fiscal year. Melissa, back over to you. All right, Courtney, thank you. Courtney Reagan back at headquarters. What do we make of these results, Guy? It's a valuation thing to me. I mean, it trades it close to 21 times, 20 times, let's say, next year's earnings. I mean, that to me in this space is expensive. I don't think you have the EPS growth. Listen, I love my Levi's. I got my 501s from when I was in high school. And I'll tell you my size if you want to buy me a pair, 34, 32. But with that said, I ain't running out and buying a stock because it's two. Seems like an elongated uh, replacement. That's a 34, 30, though. He's stretching those legs out a lot. Oh, oh, he's even overstating the leg, the line. No, what I like most about what what they're doing, though, is they're investing in the direct-to-consumer, which Uh is exactly where they, they, they had three different areas. They talk about China, they talk about women, they talk about direct-to-consumer. They're investing in those. We see the women's brand starting to work a little bit better for them. 16% growth right. she was talking about. It seems to me like this whole thing came down to a currency issue. And it, you know what? The earnings are still there. I know at 20 times that sounds like a lot. I don't, I don't know that I agree with that. I think they're actually, because they've got that revenue growth right now, Guy, and the last couple quarters, all the different regions, they've continued to grow a little bit. I think because of that, I'm actually intrigued by this. It's $17 on the IPO. I think down near 20, I'd buy this stock. I don't get this. Th- I mean, the company attributed the lower income versus expectations um, to the $29 million cost associated with the IPO in March and higher advertising right. costs. I've never heard that from an IPO out of the gate, that well, we are missing estimates because of the cost of our IPO. Well, and, and if that's the case, then, you know, it could also be, could that be a cost of the banking related to it, too? But, but the bottom line is that should be one off. That should not yeah. be something that bothers you. I mean, outside of guys switching from Wranglers since. I never had Wranglers. I mean, never. I, I do think a 501 guy. Now, at least Levi's. Levi's. Well, but, anyway. but again, up double digits in, in every kind of consumer <laughs> demographic emerging market, India, Brazil. I mean, this is really the story for this company. It goes back to why a lot of these people were chasing these demographics a long time ago in emerging markets. Levi's is there. All right, still ahead to infinity and beyond. Billionaire Sir Richard Branson taking his space tourism company Virgin Galactic public. Will this be the next frontier for investing? Plus, it is the ultimate big box battle as Target, Home Depot, Walmart, and Costco soar this year. But that's nothing compared to where one trader sees these stocks heading. We've got the details after the break. Welcome back to Fast Money. Sir Richard Branson's space tourism venture Virgin Galactic planning to go public after merging with investment social company, investment company, Social Capital, founded by tech investor Chamath Palihapitiya. Both were on Squawk Box this morning where I asked Palihapitiya how Virgin Galactic compares to a company like Tesla. Here's what he said. You have to remember when Tesla went public, it was a, I think, a two odd billion dollar market cap. It's something that's now 10x in 10 years. 
um, you know, if we are lucky to have the same trajectory and the same customer love, um, I think that we would all look back and say we've done something absolutely fantastic um, in human technology. So should investors jump into the billionaire space race and specifically in Virgin Galactic? You know, it's funny. I remember back in 2010 when Elon Musk was bringing this company public. They literally raised $225 million. When I mean, you think about it, it now has a $40 billion market cap, $25 billion in sales, you know, nine years later. And it's pretty interesting. <laughs> when you think about this, and I know one of the other parts of that conversation was the total addressable market right. for space in 10 years or something. There are estimates between low single-digit billions and like $20 billion or something like that. So if you were thinking about how you invest in the public markets and having access to something that really shouldn't be public. This is a merger, and it's going to be ultimately a public company to have access to Chamath. And, you know, he's been an amazing investor for the last 10 years in the private markets. And then Richard Branson, who's been doing it for 40 years. It's a pretty interesting way to say, you know what, I'm going to put a small amount of capital into this thing and let it run. If you'd done that in Tesla in 2010, 11, 12, you would have been happy. I mean, the similarities, at least on the surface, are very, I mean, Virgin Galactic's taking uh, deposits from customers for a trip in space that will happen later on yeah. when they get their rockets and their ships going, et cetera. They eventually want to move to more mass market to bring the cost of that space travel down to a greater audience, just like the Model 3 for Tesla. I mean, it, you're just smiling because... No, I mean, that's not my, that's not my space thing. Travel. You see yourself going to space? No, no, I, I, no, I have no interest. I don't want to no join interest, the Space Force really? and I don't want to get on one of you the Virgin Galactic things. <laughs> But I will tell you, you started this, this block, again, to go back to blocks, yes. but how do you play this IPO thing? Where are we right now? I ask you the easy questions you asked me. The the NASDAQ market NASDAQ site. NASDAQ market site. You want to I buy make, the exchanges. Yeah, you do, wise guy, because NASDAQ made an all-time high today, if you look, and it's right, and at 18 times forward earnings, not expensive, not and we're going they report this. in July 25th. That's not true, Dan. She said, how do you make money in the IPO <laughs> frenzy? That's how you do it. And I've said that for a while. Wow. Well, I, look, you, you as an investor, you should be chasing um, A-plus management teams with a, a B product, and that's how you're going to do well. If you get an A product, that's even better. Richard Branson's proven to be an A-plus manager. It's that simple. Um, and and it's, it's hard to believe that he will be overly sensational on something he spent a lot of time in, because if anything, I think he's actually undersold a lot of his stuff. Uh, and I mean, as in, he's, he's not been a hype machine, even though he's a great marketing spokesman for his companies. I couldn't agree more with Tim because, you know, whenever I do the pitch, that thing we do here, the power, power pitch, pitch. Power, the power, power pitch over there by the, oh. by the plasma, power. I start with management, and that's that truly is always where you start. And when you're looking across to your point, yeah. I mean, Richard Branson, as good as they get, uh, what, whatever you want to say about Elon Musk, this guy is something special. Now, a lot of people dislike the way he goes and whatever, but he is something special. So I think you look for those kinds of people, and if you've got growth you can get past some of the warts that might exist for at least a little while. And I think that's what we're looking at right yeah, now. Yeah, I thought one of the most interesting things today was that Chamath is putting up $100 million of his, of his own, own money, money right now. Right. Yeah. So he's going in. Well, the other thing, back to Guy's NASDAQ thingy-majiggy he was doing, really interesting <laughs> that, that this is a SPAC. They raised six, $700 million or whatever to do this deal. So this is going to be one way that companies can go public. We just saw last month, we saw Slack go public through a direct listing. Right. And then we saw the Pinterest and the Lyfts and the Ubers go through. It's kind of interesting. There's a lot of ways to get to the public markets now. And I don't know what that's telling you, but it's interesting for investors who've liked all this innovation and have been locked out. And now you're getting multiple ways to get involved in the next leg of these uh, trades. I hope our landlord, Adina Friedman, was listening. 100%. That, she that watches this show religiously. I'm sure Stacey Cunningham watches too. Richard Branson. He's watching right now. I'm Big sure. fan, Branson. Big fan.
Coming up, Walmart and Costco hitting all-time highs today with Target not far behind. Do these big box breakouts have more room to run? We are live at the NASDAQ in Times Square. Much more Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Walmart and Costco hitting all-time highs today as the big box boom continues to build steam. The big box stores are the cream of the retail trade crop this year, with Costco, Target, Walmart, Home Depot all up more than 20% in 2019. Do these names have more room to run, Tim? Well, I tell you what, based upon all we've laid out there and our setup for the market, it is that uh, consumer staples and, and essentially some of the discretionary, but big box. I, I, look, I don't like Walmart. Um, and in fact, relative to that, I love Home Depot. Uh, and I think Home Depot has a significant mode around it. Their professional services are going to mitigate some of the margin pressure that will be coming from these, ter- from these tariff wars. But look, let's be clear. This is a place where people have been running for cover based upon the expectations of the economy. Yeah. I don't know that I feel that I don't feel the same way about running for cover. I think they look at somebody like Target, for instance, and say, look at the growth and look at where the P.E. is right now of this company. It's a fraction of what you're looking at with Walmart. So I agree with you with Walmart. But I think people are just looking at these companies and they've fallen in love with the idea that they can compete and actually go head to head and win with Amazon. I think that's the part that it, what, what, no, what, that's the part I think that makes it interesting to me. I think Costco is another one of those. It trades a little bit more expensive, mm-hmm. but the fact that they've got that money that's always coming in, this is a company that continues to work well, and they can fight on the Internet if they have to, although they really don't have to compete there as much. Glad he mentioned the Costco. Yeah, the Costco. this earlier this spring. Carter, Carter Braxton Worth. Carter, not Tony Braxton. Carter Braxton right. Worth, when the stock was 248 the market, if you recall, was rolling over, and Costco was hanging in there right around, at the time, all-time highs. And he said the stock was going to break out. We agreed on the desk, said valuation is expensive, but the stock performance was telling you something. We wake up today, it's 270, and I think that stock can go higher from here as well. Well, we added two more names to the all-time high list today, but the options market's betting Costco and Walmart will not be the only big box heavyweights breaking records. One trader's betting nearly $3 million that they know which company might be next. Mike Coe's in San Francisco with the options action. Mike, what are you looking at? Yeah, so Pete just mentioned it, and it's probably one of the names he was looking at because targets are well above average call volume today. This is the second time we've seen one of these big trades in it. Somebody was rolling from the July 82.5 calls, which are now in the money, out to the January 2020 92.5 calls. About 6,000 of those traded. Those 2020 calls were going for about 4.5 bucks. That puts the break even on this trade at around $97 in a little over six months' time. That's up about 10% from where the stock is currently trading. And to Pete's point, this thing is trading for a little less than 15 times earnings over the last 10 years. That's about the historical multiple. And if you take a look, even net of tariff wars at the earnings estimates for Target going forward, we're looking at about a 7% increase year on year. So most of the expected growth in the stock price here wouldn't be coming necessarily from multiple expansion. Most of it would actually be coming from earnings growth. Is that what you were looking at? I saw that, that yeah. trade as well today. I, I like what I saw there. Actually, I added calls. I was already long stock, and I have a, a buy-right position on there. But I actually bought calls as well, looking for upside because of all those. That was huge. I didn't want to go out as far, though, Mel. I didn't want to go to 2020, and I didn't want to go that far up. Right. So I brought it in a little bit closer in terms of strike and time. All right. Mike, thank you. Mike Cohen, San Francisco. For more options action, check out our full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Yeah. Up next, final trades.
It's time for the final trade, so let's go around the horn. Pete Nigerian. Earlier in the show, we were talking about CEOs and these banks particularly, and are they overpaid and everything else. I think City is ready to finally make that move to the upside. Giddy up. I bought the stock today, sold some upside calls. I think it's going high. Nice. Tim. So Pete and I are tag teaming, to use the, nice. the, the, the wrestling lexicon that's been a part of this show tonight. I'm going with J.P. Morgan. I mean, first of all, this is a company that's going to return $40 billion to shareholders over the next calendar 12 months. By the way, last two quarters have effectively had record profitability. I don't understand the problem there. J.P. Morgan. That's- are you going to say sell no, J.P. Morgan? No, I'm actually going to – I have a little wrinkle on this whole trade. Oh, I think the KRE, the, the regional banking wrinkle. index, that thing, that ETF, it's one of the worst-looking charts. It acts so poorly. What's I a good-looking chart, Dan? This thing is a disaster, and we'll do it – you know, we'll do it tomorrow or right. later on in the week. All right. It looks like horrible. This is the lifeblood of the economy. It's These all banks, in there today. They can't get going here. I don't so like it. Basically, you're saying you're selling these two yeah. size positions. All right. Guy. Gorilla Monsoon was a tag team <laughs> champion. Monsoon. Remember the gorilla? Uh, no. Yeah. He was great. He was fantastic. Twitter reports that the end of the month had a nice day today. I believe the stock sets up well into earnings, Melissa. That does it for us. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Money. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.